we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the field. It go down. It go down in the field. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Sinead, where are you calling from today? I'm calling from Dublin, which I, I think feels very apt given the, uh, the subject of our conversation later <laughs> in the show. So, Well done for going there, especially. <laughs> that is, uh... <laughs> yeah, that shows huge commitment to the cause. Uh, David, where are you, please? I'm calling from the least Irish place in England, uh, Norwich. <laughs> you know, one of the weird things about Norwich that sticks in my head, I was a huge fan of those of the Arthur Ransom books when I was a kid. And do you know the opening sentence of The Big Six, which is set on the Norfolk Broads, is Norwich Station is a terminus. That's the sentence. Um, it It's kind of always... <laughs> um, I remember going to Norwich Station and indeed it is a terminus. It's that idea that it's it's the end of the line, right? But um, um, Not just beautiful, but factually accurate as well. Yeah. There's Arthur Ransom, good. <laughs> when uh, when I first came to Norwich, I went out on the broads with my with my kids and, and the guy who was on the boat that we, we, we went on said, um, ah, yes, you've come from London. It's like, well, Norwich is the place where dreams come to die. <laughs> <laughs> So, and, you know, um, all my kids' jaws was just like dropped to the it's chest. <laughs> it's brilliant. There's a David Hayden's short story right there. <laughs> <laughs> this is a broad spread, let's be honest, a geographically broad spread of, of places for us to be thinking about an, uh, an, an, an Irish writer, of which but more But we, we normally have somebody calling in from North London. Uh, yeah. but, uh, and I think North Nikki Birch, our producer, is taking care of that today. Am I right, sir? East London, but a oh, North okay, London right. at heart. OK, well, as long as, as long as North London is always represented on this show somewhere, <laughs> that's fine. John, shall we...? Um... OK. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today, you find us in the garden of a terraced house in the newly built suburb of Ranla in South Dublin. It's the early 1920s, and a woman is carefully picking flowers with a pair of scissors. A rough, white-haired terrier follows her hopefully as she assembles a small bouquet of pinks, marigolds, daisies, a sprig of forget-me-not. She intends to put it in a vase to brighten up the small upstairs room her husband has taken to sleeping in. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously, 
And today we're joined by two guests making their Batlisted debut. Fresh blood. Welcome, Sinead Gleeson <laughs> and David Hayden. Hello, both of you. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. I'm such a fan of this podcast, so thank you. Oh, very, you say all the right. David things. is strangely silent. I, I'm I'm stunned with gratitude and happiness to be. Oh, thanks, David. Makes note. <laughs> <laughs> Sinead's essay collection "Constellations: Reflections from Life" was published by Picador in 2019, and won Nonfiction Book of the Year at the 2019 Irish Book Awards and the Dolkey Literary Award for Emerging Writer. It was also shortlisted for the Rathbones Folio Prize, the James Tate Black Memorial Prize and Michael Dion Prize. She's the editor of The Long Gaze Back, an anthology of Irish women writers. Which writer, Sinead, inspired the title of The Long Gaze Back? Well, uh, only one, really. And titles are very tricky, as you know. Um, yeah. But I, I guess that that project itself was an act of sort of redivivus. It was an act of reclamation. And one of the writers I included um, was the wonderful Maeve Brennan, because she was among, among many women in, in Irish canonical terms that got overlooked, um, omitted, excluded uh, and didn't have their brilliant work talked about with the same volume um, as a lot of her male contemporaries. So I, I stole the line at the long gaze back from a, a, a wonderful novella called The Visitor by by an Irish writer called Maeve Brennan, who was one of my favourite Irish writers and, and somebody, one of those writers I try and press on people all the time if they haven't heard of her, because I think there's a, only a small body of work, a couple of short story collections, one novella and a collection of nonfiction. And, and that's it. There was no novel. There was no plays. Um, so there's, so there's, there's enough to be able to get through quite quickly. But uh, if people haven't heard of her, I, I love telling people to read Maeve Brennan. Well, that's why we have provided you with this platform today. <laughs> I'm listeners. so grateful. She's also the editor of The Glass Shore, short stories by women writers from the North of Ireland, and The Art of the Glimpse, 100 Irish short stories. Sinead also collaborates with artists and musicians with commissions from The Welcome Collection, BBC, Freeze and various galleries. This year with Kim Gordon, ex-Sonic Youth. She co-edited this woman's work, Essays on Music, published by White Rabbit Books, and has just completed her debut novel. Wow, you've been busy. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you for coming <laughs> on and doing this. We're, we're all busy, aren't we? Yeah, uh, yeah sure, sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, you're finishing a book. Uh, yeah, <laughs> man, I might be, I might be. Anyway, David Hayden, he was born in Ireland and lives in England, as we've established. If you, if you didn't skip the informal chat at the beginning, he, he, <laughs> he, 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 which many do, he lives in um, the little island in the bog. Uh, Norwich in Norfolk, to give it uh, Alan Partridge's term. His writing has appeared in A Public Space, Granter, The Dublin Review and Winter Papers, and on BBC and RTE Radio. He is the author of Darker With The Lights On, which was chosen as one of the Irish Times Books of the Years. And a million years ago, like John and Andy, it says here, Andy, that's me, yeah. he worked as a bookseller in Waterstones. David, do, how do you feel about Waterstones losing its apostrophe? Because uh, in our day, in our day, it was a company that belonged to a man called Waterstone, wasn't it? So yeah, it had an apostrophe in its name. But now it doesn't. It's Waterstones, as though they were a thing. Yeah. Well, David, how do you Waterstones, feel about that? You, I can only choose one. Waterstones are actually a thing. They, you sharpen knives with them. Um, so, you know, you go into really? Waterstones. You can't sharpen a knife there. There is, there's books. 
Um, I hate the fact that we lost the apostrophe. This is the best answer yes, to this question. I hate it. David, I hate it too. Although it is the sort of question a customer would come in and ask. Where are your knife sharpeners? They would have just done that, wouldn't they? Yeah. Where are your tyres? Comple- completely. I, rem- I remember, there's loads of these, but I remember one occasion somebody came in and said, do you have any books by Kirk Agard? It's probably my favourite. <laughs> probably my favourite of those, of which there are many. I'm sure you've got your own. Yeah, we all we all have. I had a person once ask for Shakespeare short stories, which was fun. <laughs> no, really, I worked with someone who so who asked me for a recommendation. This is a book, fellow bookseller asked me a recommendation of Graham Greene, which Graham Greene novel to read, and I said, "Well, maybe the end of the affair." And she said, "What the end? Not the whole thing." <laughs> Ooh. Absolutely true, ladies and gentlemen. And that, yeah. and that former bookseller is now a millionaire, and that's true. So, <laughs> so there you go. Just goes to show you can be clever about Graham Greene, it'll get you nowhere. We should say what we're... I mean, if we've probably already kind of um, uh, given you a bit of a clue, but the book we're here to discuss, or books, because it's more than one, really, but, but the main book is The Springs of Affection, uh, a collection of stories by the Irish writer Maeve Brennan, which was first published by Houghton Mifflin in 1997, although all but one of the stories in that collection appeared uh, originally in The New Yorker, where Maeve Brennan was a staff writer for 27 years. So an adopted New Yorker, Brennan died there in 1993 and was by that time so thoroughly forgotten in her native land that she received no obituaries in any Irish papers. The publication of this collection was to change all that. Anyway, we'll get on to that in a moment. First, I've got to ask the old familiar question, Andy. What have you been reading this week? Thanks, John. Uh, I've been reading a 50th anniversary uh, edition of a book entitled um, Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists? It was written by Linda Nochlin, who died in 2017, And she described the title of this book, Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists, as silly. So if you are listening to this thinking, well, of course there have been great women artists, Linda Nochlin beat you to it. The point of the book, and this is what I found so fascinating about reading it 50 years after it was written and published, first as an essay, is it's a textbook example of an argument which, when it was first made by Linda Nochlin, seemed insurrectionary and challenging and difficult and perhaps preposterous, but when we return to it 50 years later, seems merely like common sense. The answer as to why there are no great women artists is not because women aren't great at art, but because society is stacked in such a way to prevent women achieving status or greatness, or at least it was at the time Linda Nochlin was writing, and arguably, not terribly arguably, definitely still is. So it's from the early, it's from the dawn of feminist writing and thinking in the traditional uh, 70s sense. It's also uh, been republished by Thames and Hudson with an additional essay, uh, which Linda Nochlin wrote 30 years uh, after this one was published. And I'd just like to read a little bit. Uh, It probably sounds quite dry. It's not quite dry. It's tremendously funny and witheringly acerbic in places as well. 
I just thought it was wonderful. Can I ask if anybody has anybody here read this? I I have um, yeah. quite uh, quite a while ago, uh, and it's you're dead right. It is very funny because I think it was pitched as quite an academic book, and yet it's very humorous. But it was extremely groundbreaking, and as you say, to frame the title with the question. But it's really striking to me, particularly at the moment, how many books have come out very close together. You've Katie Hessel's book, you know, the story of art without men. You have mm. Jennifer Higgy writing about this. You have Francis Barzello, who's written about female portraiture. There's been loads of books that are literally books just going, we're not going to put any men in these books. Um, and I think Linda kind of started that conversation 50 years ago at a time when, you know, people like Judy Chicago and all these other feminist artists yeah. would have been around. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a super book. And I'm glad to see it's been reissued because it, it, it can be hard to find. Um, it took me a while to track it down. I bought it secondhand. It was a terrifically sharp piece of of writing and it was like it started a tsunami of, of engagements with it and, you know, it almost gave rise to the a whole new world of, of feminist art criticism as well as in, encouraging yeah. new art practice with, amongst women. And, to, you know, absolutely brilliant provocation. You can see the bones of the provocation in it and yet you'd be hard-pressed now to find anybody who wouldn't go, yeah, sure, this is... This is this is what she's saying is obviously true, Do, you know. You, um, I, I, that doesn't mean it wasn't groundbreaking then, but uh, fascinating how an idea can go from left field to centre field uh, in that way. Anyway, I I I really really enjoyed this. I would like to thank Becky Nolan for putting me onto this because uh, it's relating to something I'm trying to write about at the moment, and it was the perfect thing I needed to to read. So. Thanks, Becky. I'm just going to read a bit from the book about Rosa Bonheur, the artist. Linda Nochlin writes, Yet at the same time that Rosa Bonheur frankly rejected the conventional feminine role of her times, she still was drawn into what Betty Friedan has called the, quote, frilly blouse syndrome, that innocuous version of the feminine protest which even today compels successful women psychiatrists or professors to adopt some ultra-feminine item of clothing or insist on proving their prowess as pie bakers. <laughs> God, times have changed, haven't they? Or, or maybe not I so think. much. Oh, God. Despite the fact that she had early cropped her hair and adopted men's clothes as her habitual attire, following the example of Georges Sand, whose rural romanticism exerted a powerful influence over her imagination, to her biographer she insisted, and no doubt sincerely believed, that she did so only because of the specific demands of her profession. Indignantly denying rumours to the effect that she had run about the streets of Paris dressed as a boy in her youth, she proudly provided her biographer with a daguerreotype of herself at 16 years, dressed in perfectly conventional feminine fashion, except for her shorn head, which she excused as a practical measure taken after the death of her mother. Who would have taken care of my curls, she demanded. And then... And then this goes on. Yet at the same time, Rosa Bonheur is forced to admit, quote, my trousers have been my great protectors. Many times I have congratulated myself for having dared to break with traditions which would have forced me to abstain from certain kinds of work due to the obligation to drag my skirts everywhere. Yet, the famous artist again feels obliged to qualify her honest admission with an ill-assumed femininity, quotes, Despite my metamorphoses of costume, there is not a daughter of Eve who appreciates the niceties more than I do. My brusque and even slightly unsociable nature has never prevented my heart from remaining completely feminine, unquote. And Linda Nochlin goes on to observe um, unsparingly. 
it is somewhat pathetic that this highly successful artist, unsparing of herself in the painstaking study of animal anatomy, diligently pursuing her bovine or equine subjects in the most unpleasant surroundings, industrially producing popular canvases throughout the course of a lengthy career, firm, assured and incontrovertibly masculine in her style, winner of a first medal in the Paris Salon, officer of the Legion of Honour, commander of the Order of Isabella the Catholic and the Order of Leopold of Belgium, friend of Queen Victoria, that this world-renowned artist should feel compelled late in life to justify and qualify her perfectly reasonable assumption of masculine ways for any reason whatsoever, and to feel compelled to attack her less modest trouser-wearing sisters at the same time in order to satisfy the demands of her own conscience. For her conscience, despite her supportive father, her unconventional behaviour and the accolade of worldly success still condemned her for not being a quote-unquote feminine woman. It's just yeah. spectacularly enjoyable piece of almost belle lettre, I think. A really, really thought-provoking, enjoyable and correct book by Linda Nochlin, Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists? John, what have you been reading this week? I have been reading uh, a very uh, a book that will almost certainly sound stranger in some ways than it is. It's it's a verse novel by P.J. Harvey, the uh, singer-songwriter, musician, Polly Jean Harvey, called Orlam. It's basically a coming of age. The main character is a nine-year-old girl who lives in a village in a kind of version of Dorset. The book is written in verse. And each verse is produced in Dorset dialect. And also there's a translation on the facing page into uh, more conventional English. One of the f fun tricks is the more difficult the dialect, the lighter the type of the English translation. So there's a kind of a coding system that goes through. The poems also come with, with footnotes. A lot of the, the poetry is based on traditional Dorset folk rhymes. The story is very basically narrated by a lamb's eyeball. Or lamb is the eyeball of a, an all-seeing lamb's eyeball. It's about Ira Abel, uh, as I say, coming of age. She suffers a, an assault in a terrible place called the Red Shed and, and, and rest restores herself by uh, going through going to Gore Woods, which is the, the, the woods next to her house in this strange in this strange village. Um, she, it's it's like a kind of dark almanac. It goes through each month of the year, the sort of ritual of each month, but also the kind of uh, the the landscape, the changing landscape, the changing animals. At the centre of the story, there's a sort of love affair. She discovers what we can only assume is the ghost of a Civil War soldier, who is rather brilliantly called Wyman Elvis. He's a kind of saviour figure, like a Christ-like figure. And Love Me Tender is the uh, is 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 the is the burden of his of his kind of philosophy and wisdom. I know that all sounds very very weird, but actually it's brilliantly done. Channeling a bit of Ridley Walker. There are links, I think, with um, Max Porter's Lanny as well. If I read you just a two little tiny bits, and you can get give you the the flavour of it. This is on Underwellum is the village that she lives in, which is which is good fun. And I'll read it in my attempt at a Dorset dialect. Uh, don't at me if I get it wrong. The old village in a hag-ridden hollow, 
All ways to it winding, all roads to it narrow. Overlooked bog, veiled in fog, Zirt over, under cretin, rank with seepings. Jays, fluids, slurries, sweat and pus, Anus grease, squirters, jizz and blood. You don't really need that translating. <laughs> it reminds me also, there's a brilliant, brilliant Jonathan Mead's collection of stories called uh, Filthy English. There is that sense of extremely, almost, almost kind of uh, the star cadders, you know, of Stella Gibbons' A Cold Comfort Farm. Very, very threatening. But the poetry is, the poetry I think is amazing. And uh, it's often very beautiful. Another quick one, just to give you a sense of the weird way that she enables, somehow enables you to, to believe that there is a Civil War soldier who is also weirdly Elvis. This is called Lonesome Tonight. Gorewoods, hark the greening of the eth, curled ferns yet to uncurl, hark the singing of the birds, girl yearns yet to ungirl. Beech and olla, woken birch, biddle, bullhead, squirrels, dray, willow, aspen, elder, larch, soldier, king on maundy day. This is from April, sort of Easter. Inner satchel, Pepsi fizz, peanut and banana crusts, for this man her shepherd is, parts her bready lips of love. Are you Elvis? Are you God? Jesus sent to win my trust. Love me tender, are his words. As I have loved you, so you must. Thrice she draws her lips to kiss, mouthing for his mouth in vain. Thrice her lonesome kisses miss. My love, will you come back again? And then there's a footnote here saying, obviously there's a quote from the Bible, as I've loved you, so you must love one another. But then, is your heart filled with pain? Shall I come back again? Tell me, tell me, dear, are you lonesome tonight? From are you lonesome tonight? I mean, it's the kind of thing I love. It's as mad and strange and complex. You know, often this stuff is written, this strange, weird folk stuff is written by men. It's not often you get a woman, a woman doing it in this, in this vein, in this dark, strange, seething, odd uh, narrative. It's not a book you can read particularly quickly, but I've gone back to it. So I mean, it's, I've read it over a, over a series of months, and each time I go back to it, I get more out of it. So, highly recommend it. Okay, so that's called Orlam, PJ Harvey, published by Picador, and it's really beautiful bit of bookmaking as well. It has a touch of the uh, Pender's Fend. You know, do you it remember does. Pender's Fend? It, all it of does that. indeed. All yeah, of that. yeah. Uh, Sinead, you've met PJ Harvey, haven't you? I, I have. I used to be, I was, a, I was a music journalist a, a long time ago and I went to London. I thought it was white chalk. It was actually Let England Shake. And when I think about it and this book, I think there are definite parallels between Let England mm. Shake and the landscape yeah. and blood. And like even the bit you read, John, is very visceral and, and gutsy and bloody and all of those things. Um, and I think that I, I remember reading nearly every album, she would go back and learn a new instrument. So I think she she learned how to play like an auto harp. And, and then I remember reading, this is obviously predates this book, where she had gone to do a local course down the road in Dorset to learn about iambic pentameter because she wanted to write poetry. So yeah. I, I love the idea that you don't ever stop learning if you're a writer or a performer or a musician. Mm -hmm. There's always something, you, even if you're as brilliant as, as Polly is, there's always something new that you can learn. So, yeah. Sinead, I too have met PJ Harvey about 30 years ago where I drunkenly congratulated her on the set uh, that she just played before she'd actually gone on stage. So, so I, I've never been able to listen to any of her work ever since without a terrible feeling of mortification at having made that slight gaffe. 
So really, we should turn our attention back to Maeve Brennan now. Uh, the Springs of Affection, the subtitled Stories of Dublin, is a collection of 21 stories, roughly divided into three sections. The first section is autobiographical and features incidents from Maeve's childhood in suburban Dublin. The second explores the painful complexities of the marriage of Rose and Hubert Durden, who live in the same or a similar house and suburb that Maeve grew up in, as do the Baggots, the family that are the subject of the final eight stories, including the long final story that gives the book its title, and which her friend and editor William Maxwell considered to be one of the uh, greatest stories of the 20th century. This was a view shared by the Canadian Nobel laureate and short story writer Alice Munro, and it was the enthusiastic praise from Munro, Edna O'Brien and Mavis Gallant, among others, that helped get the Springs of Affection the kind of international attention that the two collections published in Maeve's lifetime, In and Out of Never Never Land in 1969 and Christmas Eve in 1974, failed to achieve. Neither of those books was even paperbacked or published in either Ireland or the UK. However, since the posthumous publication of The Springs of Affection in 1997, Mae Brennan's reputation has grown steadily and her stories are now regularly and favourably compared to those of Joyce, Chekhov and Colette. In Ireland, in particular, she has won the admiration of a new generation of women writers who, in Anne Enright's phrase, see her as a casualty of old wars not yet won. In 2016, the Irish publisher Stinging Fly published both The Springs of Affection, with an introduction by Anne Enright, and The Long-Winded Lady, a collection of Maeve's New Yorker columns. And in February, next February, the London-based indie Peninsula Press have announced they're publishing a new edition of The Springs of Affection, with an introduction by the novelist Claire Louise Bennett. Uh, so the Brennan revival continues uh, to, with today's podcast, um, as we've got two writers here who are both passionate admirers of and advocates for Maeve's writing. David, let me start with you. Can you remember where you were or who you were when you first read the work of Maeve Brennan? I read um, a single story in two different anthologies and kind of moved on. One of them was Frank Delaney's anthology that he did for the Folio Society, and the other was the massive um, Colin Toybean one. And um, and then a couple few years after that, a friend emailed me saying, God, I just read this amazing anthology, and the best thing in it that I read was by Maeve Brennan, and that anthology was The Long Gaze Back. And he said, I've got to read more. I've got to read more. And then we, we both kind of like went away and went, I'm like, oh, my God, I've not, I, I sort of didn't, I didn't get to grips with this writer. So I went and I found the counterpoint edition of The Springs of Affection and was just, you know, two stories in was just completely, I just couldn't believe that I hadn't immersed myself in this, in this writer and then just read everything. So, uh, yeah, it's thanks to this anonymous friend and, and, and Sinead, you know, got me to this place where, um, you know, she's, she's now a favourite writer. Sinead, similar question to you. Can you remember when you first, where, where you first encountered the stories in The Springs of Affection? Well, I, I didn't come to Maeve via the stories, first of all. And in fact, my first experience of Maeve was on... Do you remember the old Guardian Saturday Review used to be a full colour photograph as opposed to yeah. a kind of text? And they had this now iconic photograph of Brennan on the front um, 
uh, in taken by Carl Bissinger, where she's sitting, looking very elegant, smoking a cigarette, dressed in black. And uh, I, I just looked at the photograph and thought, who is this? I'm very intrigued. And I read on and there was a, a, a large extract from Angela Burke's um, Homesick at the New Yorker. It's, it's the first kind of landmark work a, about Maeve. And I, I think a big act of, of reclamation, a big act that without that book, a lot of people wouldn't be talking about Maeve at all. Um, so I read on and immediately thought I was in a book club at the time and I told everybody in it. And one of the women in the book club said, I have a, I have a book of hers. I have a small book called The Visitor. Do you want to borrow it? Which was a, a novella which had been published in Ireland by New Island, who who published The Long Gaze Back in 2000. So I, I, I just dived into it and thought, OK, I have to read more. And again, as, as David said, it was, it was very hard. It was only the US stuff available. And in 2005, the Irish Independent, a newspaper here, did a series of 20 Irish novels, one a week on a Saturday for like five quid. And they did, this, in, in a horrifying design, I might add, but they did The Springs of Affection. So I was able to buy it for a fiver. So that was when I, so 2005 is when I first read the stories. And again, the first thing I thought, and I've had this many times with compiling anthologies where you go digging around and doing literary archaeology to find people, I, I felt a wave of delight, but also anger, as in, yeah. mm. why is nobody talking about her? Why has she what? been forgotten? Yes. Where has this work gone? I can't believe she's as good as anybody yes. that everybody yes. talks about yes. in terms of the Irish <laughs> canon. And I was kind of furious because the stories were exceptional. This is how long these episodes take to percolate, listeners. I can remember you saying several years ago, you know, well, I'd love to do Maeve Brennan. I had never heard of Maeve Brennan. And I ordered up a copy of The Springs of Affection and read two or three of the stories. And immediately, Sinead, had the same response to you as you of just thinking, but wait a minute, this is preposterously, self-evidently first rate. How, how, how have I, how is this, how do I not know, you know, about this writer. This is this is can, so can obviously I, good. Can I quote you? Uh, Anne Enright wrote the introduction to The Springs of Affection for The Stinging Fly and she says in it, um, Maeve Brennan didn't have to be a woman for her work to be forgotten, though it surely helped. And I think that, that sums it up a lot, <laughs> quite a lot. Why have there been no great women artists, yeah. right? You were saying about Linda Nochlin earlier and uh, it made me think of the Joanna Russ's book, How to Suppress Women's Writing. And everything that you need to know about why Maeve Brennan isn't wasn't read until she was recovered is in Joanna Russ's book How to Suppress Women's Writing Well I would like to ask John Mitchinson who I have been we've been making this show for seven years uh, why John Mitchinson you are all over New Yorker writers like yeah. you are all over Maxwell you knew Maxwell even when we were talking about Salinger you and I both had a moment of thinking well actually you know what Salinger probably must be pretty good because he was published in the New Yorker. That's how much we, we respect the New Yorker. And had you read Brennan before? Yes. What happened was um, when I went to see Maxwell in New York uh, in 97, we, we were bringing out all his novels in amazingly in the UK for the first time, as uh, he hadn't been published in, in the UK. Um, and uh, as well as giving me a copy of his first book, They Came Like Swallows, in a, 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 which uh, which he signed, and also a copy of his correspondence with Sylvia Townsend Warner, which is a, a wonderful book. He said there is a, a, a book coming out from a colleague, a former colleague of mine in the New Yorker who died a few years ago, called Maeve Brennan. Uh, before you leave New York, make sure you get a copy of uh, of the book. And that's what I bought. I bought it then. I, I read, like you, some of the stories on the plane. Thought they were incredible. Um, and then came back to 
it's just <laughs> no no one I knew had heard of her. No one had 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 nobody nobody I guess who remembered. And then I found one one old fr- friend of 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 of, uh, of a family friend. He was a, a person who lived in New York, and she said she used to write the best talk of the town pieces, and they were all collected together in a book. Um, and I re- I remember trying to find the, the long winded lady and. I couldn't. I mean, I, I, I just I tried in a few bookshops. So, and then I forgot about her for a long, long time after that, and moved out of publishing. And it was, it was that thing of that nagging thing every time you'd see, I'd see a copy of it, or somebody would mention it. And I remember in, when when Stinging Fly brought out their edition, must go back to to read the whole of Springs of Affection. Must go back to to find out more. The thing is, I, I I feel, I feel that slight, almost slight shame. The, this because the, these stories are so good. These stories are so, so good. Uh, you say uh, Ireland. I would put her up there in the in the front rank of of, of great short story writers of the twentieth century, without any doubt. I mean, I, I think she occupied a, a kind of birth in the New Yorker, didn't she? You know, not dissimilar to Molly Panter Downs, who had a regular feature called Letters from London in the New Yorker, which meant that she was tremendously well known in the States and barely known in the in the UK. And to some extent, Brennan has a similar situation. Her relationship with the New Yorker means she's known in New York, but 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 less well known at home. And and yet that doesn't apply to people like Mary Lavin, Elizabeth Bowen, Frank O'Connor and the huge wealth of Irish writers who published substantially yeah. with The New Yorker. I could never quite figure that out. I mean, over 40 stories Brennan published. That's a, a huge body of work. Yeah. Um, and the fact that, I mean, she had she started, I think, in 1949. She got a staff job at only 32. 1949, the year Ireland became a republic as well. But I think it's that thing. It's also like... I, I talk about Nora Holt, another writer in the long days back sometimes who, who's, who left Ireland because her parents had died and spent a lot of time being shunted back and forth between the UK and Ireland. And Louise Kennedy, the great Irish writer, has has written an introduction to another book about Holt and said she kind of fell between two stools. And I think that happened a little with Maeve, the fact that, she, you know, it was enough for her to get the acclaim over there, but nobody in Ireland was talking about her. She wasn't, she didn't come back very often. She did in the later parts of her life. Came back to Roddy Doyle's family. She's related to Roddy Doyle and Roddy yeah. Doyle reads Christmas Eve on the New Yorker Fiction podcast mm. about it. But yeah, it's it's surprising to me that the volume of work was there. In, in terms of talk of the town, um, and we may talk a bit about that in a, in a moment, it, it, I mean, it's been called co- columns and, and magazine-y and it's it's quite throwaway to some people. But I, I think of it as, uh, her as one of the kind of the early Irish female essayists, for sure, based on those columns. But she's also the first woman to write those columns. They were also unsigned, so a lot of people didn't know who she was. Yeah, and, she was and even yeah. giving herself the kind of the soubriquet of like the long-winded lady suggests she's kind of this gossipy old bag as opposed to this woman with this really sheer sheer-eyed, kind of clear-eyed um, perception of walking around the city as as a woman, as an immigrant, uh, as a lone woman in, in that kind of psychogeographic flanous kind of way that, you know, that Vivian Gornick mm. has done so well about yeah. New York, that Rebecca Solnit's done so well. Um, and I, I think a lot of people talk about the fiction, but I, I always like to talk about the non-fiction as well. But it, yeah, it's staggering. A, a huge body of work at the New Yorker. And I always come back to O'Connor and think, you know, he was he was writing about the short story and, and write, wrote a brilliant book about the short story, about how this it, it, it gives voice to the, the submerged voices, the people on the hinterland, the people on the outside, which, you know, a, a woman in 1940s America who, who wasn't married, that, that would absolutely have been, have been Brennan. But he certainly didn't champion her and bring her into that, that inner circle of, of, of writers, um, which it, just, it always has disappointed me to this day. 
I wonder whether the New Yorker was such a nice place to work. <laughs> That's one of the things that I think about. I always think, well, you know, that excellence, that uh, emphasis on excellence means, you know, collegiate, it either was or wasn't. It seems like it was quite, you know. A lot of drinking, massive amounts. Mm. Of, I mean, it, mm. it always feels to me very mad men, the, the whole, when, you, when you, 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 you think about it was like, and, and that sort of, uh, somebody, I think I was listening to something. It was actually in a, an interview with with Angela Burke, and she, I think they even said Maeve was a bit like the Peggy Olson character. In, except that I have to say that yeah, everything you read about her was she was incredibly. She wrote brilliant, short, pungent book reviews. She was very witty. She was good at put downs. She was sort of she was a lot sassier than I think uh, Peggy Olson mm. in, in, in Mad Men is. David. Yeah, I, I was going to say Angela Burke does this kind of almost incidental flyover of the New Yorker culture, depression, alcoholism, suicide attempts, successful and unsuccessful. And you just go, this is the horror workplace, you know, really a, mm. a, quite a terrifying place to work. But she also says that, you know, if there was laughter coming from the water cooler, chances are that it was coming from something that Maeve Brennan was saying. In fact, she was moved. They, she was moved in That's the office right. because she was such a disruptive influence on people trying to write. She was too amusing. Um, mm. but, um, she, there's, who, wouldn't, who wouldn't want to be remembered like that? As well, well so. yeah. <laughs> the I, most I think, amusing I person in New Yorker. Wow. For, for all the kind of, for, for O'Connor not championing her, you know, William Sean took a punt at her and Maxwell was so good to her her whole life and, and always, always stayed in her corner and encouraged her work. Um, and I think that might have been a bit more unusual at the time. He just saw something in the writing that maybe other people didn't necessarily and, and was a lifelong um, uh, beacon in a way. He sort of always... Uh, and wrote, wrote her obituary and wrote a beautiful introduction mm -hmm. to the to the spring so, perfection. So, because we're talking about short stories and essays, uh, we can't, um, to the same extent, say what the book is about. Or, you know what the through line is or the the story is, because there isn't one. It doesn't work like that. Um, but I wonder, therefore, if we could first hear from you, Sinead, and then you, David. Please read us a piece of prose of May Brennan's prose, which you feel communicates to listeners what is so special about how she um, put her sentences together? Uh, it's really hard to pick. Mm. There's so much about the work that is, is so minute. Uh, it's mm. the specificity, whether she's writing about New York streets or she's writing about the, the you know, the house in Ranala. And I, I must tell you, actually, I have been in that house in Ranala, um, Maeve's really? house. Um, and the woman who owns the house is called Maeve. Um, oh. um, and I, I just sent her a letter one day and asked if I could, you know, thinking she wouldn't get back to me. And she did and said, yes, of course, you can come and look around. And it's been renovated a lot, but it was heart stopping to see that the three steps that go down from the hall out to the garden are still there and the bay window is still mm. there and all the, the oh, row wow. ceilings. So all the things from the stories are, are, are still there. So, yeah, please give us a paragraph. Yes. This is from the, the eldest child. Mrs. Baggett had lived in the house for 15 years, ever since her marriage. Her three children had been born there, in the upstairs front bedroom, and she was glad of that, because her first child, her son, was dead. And it comforted her to think that she was still familiar with what had been his one glimpse of earth. He had died at three days. At the time he died, she said to herself that she would never get used to it, 
And what she meant by that was as long as she lived, she would never accept what had happened in the mechanical, subdued way that the rest of them accepted it. They carried on. They talked and moved about her room as though when they tidied the baby away, they had really tidied him away. And it seemed to her that more than anything else, they expressed the hope that nothing more would be said about him. They behaved as though what had happened was finished, as though some ordinary event had taken place and come to an end in a natural way. There had not been an ordinary event and it had not come to an end. It's pretty oh, devastating. That Oof. final line. Uh, David, um, do you have something that um, <laughs> you particularly like? That you could share with us. I was just, you know, there were some things. You said that, you had nine nine pieces yeah, you wanted well, to read, David. <laughs> I was going to read a little bit. There's, there are some images and tropes that turn up again and again. There's mirrors and there's shadows, um, and um, and it's that it's it's the the watchfulness of the description is part of what's extraordinary about it. Um, I can't think of another writer that that does what she does. And you end up with, I mean, she's, you know, she's a, she's brilliant syntactically, but she's not scared of the short, simple sentence that just turns you inside out, basically. Um, so here's a short passage that has um, mirrors and shadows in it from the story, The Shadow of Kindness. She bent forward to the mirror again and carefully pushed a loose strand into the neat bun at the back of her head. But as she moved, something moved with her. Something much larger and even more silent than she was. Her shadow was on the wall to the side of the mirror, and it was following her. And now it was bending with her, bending toward her, and she stared at it. The light in her own bedroom gave her no shadow that she had ever noticed. She paused and the shadow paused also, waiting for her as she waited for it. She looked closer, and at that moment, as it bent its head, she knew what she was looking at. That was her mother's shadow there on the wall. There was no mistake about it. That was her mother. <laughs> so good. <laughs> I'm laughing only because that's so good. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm laughing. Again, if I'm picking up the thing I said earlier, how can something be that good and unknown? Yeah. You, know, you were saying about how angry and, and frustrating it is. Do you think there's something, though, uh, Sinead, that's changed in taste? I mean, I, I, I'm just I, I'm struggling to think how at any time that wouldn't seem like very, very great very original very distinctive writing um and and very unsentimental you know you talk about uh, connor but you know he, he he was you know there's plenty of sentimentality in, in 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 his stories but not a trace of it ever in in in, in these stories of may brennan's i just wonder what's changed that makes us now able to see them more clearly i think in 
Brennan's case, I mean, she's very, I, I think of her not just as an Irish writer, but intrinsically yeah. a Dublin writer. And I think of Joyce like that. And I think of, I think of Beckett like that as well. Um, in that, you know, and not just because, it, because it's so specific to the addresses and the spaces and the house and the garden. Um, I think in a way, th- there's, a, there's a line where the, yeah, I think herself and Maxwell didn't, they were falling over the fact that she wouldn't read Elizabeth Bowen. Yeah. And she said that she had a fear of the, the bog and thunder variety of Irish writing hmm. that was foisted, you know, abroad in the name of our Irish writing. And I think she desperately tried to stay, stay, stay out of that. So you don't, while you do find priests, you don't find the traditional kind of priests you do in her stories. And, you know, there aren't farms, there, there isn't the same kind of alcoholism, there isn't a lot of the kind of things that we saw in Irish stories for a long time. So to, to me, I, I feel that they're very much aligned to, 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 to Joyce. And I think I mentioned the kind of psychogeography and the flanoozing aspect of them, which is the New York stuff. But for me, I think there's a, there's a, the, Joyce had the epiphanies and Brennan had the, what you call moments of recognition. And I think that those are the two things that draw people to both of those writers' works. Um, and it is exactly as you say, there's something timeless. It doesn't matter if she's writing about, you know, 30s Dublin or 50s New York. It doesn't feel like that to me. It doesn't feel old. It feels very, very fresh because she's, what she's talking about is the interiority of people's lives, of, of families, of family dramas, of of homes. And even when she's writing, and it's possibly one of the reasons the work doesn't get often get picked up, which she's writing about sofas or carpets and those kind of like, you know, domestic MacGuffins, because that's what they are um, talking about. You know, a house, a room that has one has lino and one has carpet, one is heated by gas. It's about those kind of brutal hierarchies that go on in families. The Durdens being, being a case in point, a kind of very toxic relationship and family. So I think the fact that she's able to burrow all to those, into those things that, that never go away, the dysfunctional um, horribleness of, of of breaking down relationships, of families, of feeling trapped, of feeling your life didn't turn out the way it wa- you wanted it to. All those things are, are are timeless, and I think that's what she does so well. It doesn't matter that they're in a small house in Dublin, or you know, a, a New York that's long gone. It was at the, a New York that as she was writing herself was falling down and changing all the time when she was living there. It doesn't matter the the, the prose and and the ideas and the themes are completely timeless. Yeah, I was just thinking about. Um... You know, William Maxwell compared her to Tegenev, didn't compare her to a, an American writer or an Irish writer. He compared it to one of the greatest writers in world literature. And, you know, normally when somebody does that, you hear comparisons of short story writers to Chekhov all the time. And you just think a person just needs to go and stand in the corner and be ashamed of themselves because it's, it's almost certainly not true. But in the, <laughs> <laughs> cool, cool your head. Um, in the case of Maeve Brennan, you can completely see that, you know, the 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 great Russian writers were um, immensely important to the development of our, of modern Irish literature, and Frank O'Connor himself, Sean O'Fallon, were both enormous admirers of Chekhov and Turgenev, but not as good though. <laughs> Much of the time, with Brennan, you go, yeah, okay, Turgenev, you get that. That's it's the 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 lightness and the density, the 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 felicity the tr- to the terrific ear the universalizing of the specific it's all there Sinead. I was also another person who who was a friend of hers and admirer was Edward Albee the playwright who who Indeed. dedicated a play to her but also he he said it's only right to mention her in the company of, of Chekhov and Flaubert I mean again as as I think it's very key that she wasn't compared to to you know to Somerville and Ross or to Irish writers who came before her um uh, she was compared to the greats, international greats. And I think mm. that's right. All men, interestingly, as well. I would like to just read you the end of um, the story, The Day We Got Our Own Back, which is clearly <laughs> like those early uh, 
Dublin story is very autobiographical based on her own childhood. And uh, as we're speaking of great writers, I'm going to mention Ray Davis of the Kinks, who um, always says that what he likes to do in a song that really works is save something up till the last line of the song. And the last line is where it hits. So the whole song is waiting for you, the listener, to arrive at the last line. And the last line is what will recast the previous three minutes that you've heard. That's one of Ray's techniques. And I, when I read this story, I thought, oh, right. I, I recognise that in this Maeve Brennan story. All you really need to know is that the house in which she and her family are living has been raided, that a tremendous mess has been caused, and that a man has stuck his head up their chimney and come down with a face full of soot. Here's the end of the story. When they had gone, my mother gazed about her at all the work they had made. It would be a long time before she had the house neat again. We all trailed down into the kitchen and surveyed the mess there. This time there was no question of making tea because the tea was on the floor along with the flour and the sugar. We had seldom heard my mother's voice raised in laughter. She has a very quiet, almost secret manner in amusement. Now, however, she began to tremble and to smile. Oh, she cried, to see the look on his face when he came back out of the chimney. My little sister and I began to jump around, cackling. Oh, cried my mother, what warned me? not to have the chimney cleaned. Oh, thanks be to God, I forgot to have the chimney cleaned. And with us chattering, a delighted, incredulous accompaniment, she laughed as though her heart might break. There it all is, packed into the last three or four words. <laughs> it's just spectacular, really. I, I, I find these, you know, she's an example of a writer, John, that I find moving to read, sometimes because there's a kind of drift to sentiment, but often not. It's just the kind of the bravery and the precision of the thing. Um, well, I, I agree. You know, I also find... The artistry of it. I also... The artistry is exactly what I was going to say, that, that I, so many of these stories, I'm, I'm reading them and, and I'm thinking... You don't often get it, actually. I find that you think this is this is structured and layered in such a careful and intelligent way that I'm going to have to read the story again almost immediately to to to, to get the full resonance. She has this extraordinary ability to say simple things that you might not pay attention to, and maybe this is part of the problem. Maybe too maybe people read read this, these stories too quickly and don't. I just wanted to. You know, I was, I was all having a go. I just wanted to read the beginning of the last story in the Hubert, last story chronologically in the Hubert um, and Rose Durden sequence. It's called The Drowned Man. And there's a shock from the first sentence because you realise that Rose, Rose has died. After his wife died, Mr Durden was very anxious to get into her bedroom to have a look round on his own with the door closed and with no one there to watch him and wonder how he was feeling. It was not anxiety or grief 
or any painful sensation, not longing or yearning or anything like that that drew him into the room, but curiosity. He wanted to look at it, that room that had hardly existed for him while she was alive, that he'd seldom entered, although he had occasionally stood in the doorway or at least paused in the doorway to call something into her on his way out of the house. The room now seemed mysterious to him, the way an empty house will suddenly seem mysterious and even frightening to children who never noticed it when it was occupied, and the way a bird's nest, lying empty on the ground after a summer storm, will crowd the mind with thoughts that have nothing to do with wings and food and warmth and song, thoughts of vacancy and thoughts of winter and of winds that are too violent and nights that are too dark and thoughts of stony solitude endured in silence and of landscapes that are too cold and flat and where no one cares to walk. The little nest, cast to the ground, contains an emptiness that is too big for us to understand. We cannot imagine how it must feel. It is a limitless emptiness, and beyond us, although we would like to be able to understand it and examine it from all angles and mark its limits and bring it under control and then put it away in a comfortable place and forget about it. But the nest is nothing, no more than a scrap. The emptiness is only a brazen image of the fear that is so commonplace that we cannot merely walk through it every day pretending we do not notice it, but can walk through it and pretend it is not there. As long as the nest is there empty, we look into it, but then it is gone and we think no more about it. As long as the door of his wife's bedroom in which she had died remained closed and the room behind it empty, Mr. Durden thought of nothing else. <laughs> They're so poisonous, those stories. <laughs> Um, Sinead, I've got a question for you about this. So yeah. she writes about the Durdens and the Baggots. She doesn't write the stories in chronological order. She keeps circling round, uh, much like my, you know, my heroine Gwendolyn Riley. She keeps returning to the same territory to explore how she feels about it at, at intervals. Are the Durden and Baggot stories episodic novels or are they discrete stories? Uh, I actually, particularly Rose's story, I think the sto Rose's, when Rose appears in these handful of stories, I think Brennan tells us enough about her. Uh, there's a novel's worth. I, I feel I've got a novel about Rose's life out of reading those handful of stories. And I think it's that sort of these eddies that she goes around in over and over again. E even, the, the you know, the, the Durdens, there was the... the they're, they're, they're kind of almost the, the horribleness, the, the horror they have of each other. The kind of, there's a moment where I think at one point there's a lot of standing at doors, as David says, where he's standing in a doorway at some point and he said, you know, he, he disliked her so much he smiled. Um, and there's so yeah. many little toxic, yeah. toxic yeah. bombs within the stories. And I think that by, by going back all the time and, and, and circling and revising, Brennan is making us look. It's sort of it's, it's that you can't look away. It's so it's so horrible. 
um, it's so painful. But again, you're talking about a lot of the stories are set in an Ireland, which would have been a very painful and repressive place. There wouldn't have been divorce. There would have been a very set of strict codes of morality, um, uh, you know, after McQuaid and, the, you know, the era of de Valera. And it was de Valera who sent her father to America to be the first Irish ambassador anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so a very, a very restrained and horrifying time that the house would have been, you know, at one point it talks about Hu- Hubert's job. He works in a shop in Grafton Street in Dublin. But that's the only reference to him going outside. The whole thing, all of those stories are so claustrophobic. It's very much set within those four walls of the home, deliberately so. You're not meant to leave. Brennan doesn't want us to leave. She wants us to stay, to look around, to eavesdrop and absorb the horror of these dysfunctional um, people and and the hatred that they have for each other. So that's why that's why we yeah. don't get to leave. And that's why there, there are all these returns and echoes all the way through it. It's to remind you all the time, there's no escape from the, the life these people have chosen. Um, you were saying about visiting the house. Earlier you were saying about visiting yeah. the house. You know, the idea of her as, as a writer of the domestic environment, the the horror that can be contained in the same space that is both a place of security and and you know domestic stability is also a place of torture and 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 trauma yeah, right. it's the, it's the, the, it's it's like the unheimlich in you know the 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 house. It's it, it can be a horror house in a horror film, or it can be a place of um, and bliss and and you know safety. Um, but I think to me the fact it's the quietness of the stories. Um, they're not bombastic. They weren't dealing with the same kind of things that we were used to seeing in Irish writing. The kind of the the, the thro- tropes and team, themes that we get kind of along the way with Irish writing. But for me, I think it's the it's the it's that quietness. It's that again to go back to that term, the moments of recognition. Yeah. I think she saw things in people, in situations, um, in cultures that lots of other writers, Irish otherwise, just don't pick up on and, and could never hope to encapsulate and, and, and grab into the writing and I, I think that's one of the reasons that she she stands out and I, again I think there's a lot of there's been a lot of love for me because she is she is the embodiment of the forgotten Irish writer and the forgotten mm. Irish female writer as, you, as we said at the start of the programme um, to be so good and mm. to be so overlooked is, is almost criminal I, I would like to um, just lob in uh, a, um, an adjective used by William Maxwell and ask each of you what you think he meant by this he called them ferocious stories. Uh, David, um, this gives the other two chance to uh, <laughs> <laughs> contemplate their answers. So, David, I'm I'm waffling to give you a moment to think. Max, what gives them ferocious stories? What does he mean? Uh, so I think it's ferocious in a number of ways. I mean, um, the the clarity of vision of um, the disappointments of of relationships, you know, sibling relationships, uh, family relationships that are so important you can't escape from them. The, the relationships that you, that you choose with partners, the failings, the everyday failings of, of small cruelties, and that's all over those stories. But also, I think this is maybe one of the reasons why it was they were difficult to take root in in Ireland until relatively recently is that mm. it's it is a fairly ferocious judgment on the failings of both sides of the political establishment whether it's free state or or right. or, um, or republican yeah. fall. you know when you think about what came before there is a sense of claustrophobia and loss and disappointment and a lack of life and all of those things from from 20s, 30s um, Dublin and Ireland generally. And she's so dispassionate about that 
She doesn't give you anywhere to look. It's straight at you. Sinead. Ferocity. Yeah, I... I ferocious. What does Maxwell mean there? I think because they're ferocious in that they're almost unbearable. They're quite painful to read. They, they make you flinch reading them. You you almost feel your, yourself flayed. You feel that smarting sense of pain when you're reading the story. You feel very intrusive reading the stories and that I often feel like, you, you know, you're standing in those Ranelagh rooms and I, it's not because I've seen them. You, we've all got a picture of what they look like. But I almost feel like I'm standing in the room listening to somebody's argument or something very private that shouldn't be revealed. Uh, and also, I think there was a mythology held up about what was going on in Irish family homes and every marriage was happy, everybody was fine, everything was wonderful and the church were at the head of this encouraging all this, you know, canubial bliss, it's amazing and of course it wasn't for a lot of people. Um, you know, and usually they had it one son and he was now gone and, and all they were left with after these years of marriages is, is that they don't really like each other and they're not very fond of each other and that, that which then in, ter- in turn impacts on their own individual happiness and lives. So this kind of being, this umbilical collection they have together is very poisonous. Um, so I think the ferocity for me is is that, again, Maeve didn't fear saying these things because I think holding up a mirror to that kind of, you know, bu- buckling, um, puncturing the idea of what the Irish happy marriage was and what goes on again, as we know the term, behind closed do- doors. You didn't talk about that in Ireland. Um, and there is the good room in the house, that so-called good room you'd bring the priest to. Room, um, I yeah. think she wasn't afraid to sort of call out that it isn't always wonderful it isn't always happy and the ferocity is for me is that I find them deeply uncomfortable to read sometimes because they're they're too real and they're too brutal but they feel mm-hmm. like relationships you know about you know this happens in relationships now but we didn't know that those things happened in Ireland and marriages because we just didn't see mm-hmm. them in, in, in literature John I, I for me there's a kind of Riesian the ferocity is the Riesian reckless commitment to telling the truth you know, the, 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 I, I detect that in Brennan as well. I don't know what you feel about the kind of ferocious element of that. Yeah, this, the, the incredible uh, title story, Springs of Affection, okay, which is almost a novella in, it, in itself, uh, which is sort of the, the, the narrated by Min, the, uh, the Martin Baggett's sister, who's like, it's almost Dickensian the way she's kind of, lording over the fact that she's got all the furniture and she's got his ring she's wearing his ring and she's but she remembers that it's it's one of the most heartbreaking things I've I've ever read is she she remembers talking to him before he dies Martin dies and she says there was nothing to Delia and he says he reminds the sister that she'd sent the other sister to an asylum she says yeah Claire was mad Martin says there was nothing to Delia that's a weight off my mind I know where I am now. I always knew where I was with her, even though I didn't know what she was. And now I still don't know what she was. And God knows I don't know where I am without her. But there was nothing to her. That Mm. fact that he would agree, oh my God, that is so bleak. (laughs) You know, at the end of his life, that's, that's, there was nothing to my wife. Um, And we know we've had most of the book telling just what she was trying to do with her children and her garden and her animals and her her family and where she came from and who she was. It's just, oof. Yeah, I mean, that's ferocious, yeah. David, you were saying earlier about her as a writer about New York as well, that she has a kind of outsider's view of New York City, which is invaluable, right? She, She... yeah, I ca- she doesn't take Central Park for granted. That's one of the, I always think about New York writers. They always go, "Oh, Central Park, right?" But she she can see it from like 
some other perspective. You know, it reminded me of, I was thinking, it made me think of two filmmakers, um, one Jonas Mikas and his kind of portraits of New York, which are so joyful usually, and then Chantal Ackerman's wonderful film, Home in New York, where she's, you know, there's this wonderful long, long shots of, 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 the, of the streets of New York in a fairly shabby state in those days. And then her um, ringing her mum at home and that connection between home and New York, um, home being Belgium. And that external look at New York really shows you the city. And with somebody as acute and... You know, actually, there's like a come back to that word watchful. There's something, there's something quiet and determined in her apprehension of the of the the city and its people, and a sympathy that is not there. She's not like an uptown person looking down on people. She's looking at on at the same level as those uh, as those people, with their hurt, their confusion, their lostness, their self exile, and and she captures all of that and. And she does it in these in the the long uh, winded lady thing. These miniatures are so terrific. It's yeah, an immense yeah. skill to do that. And Maxwell said that she was a big fan of of uh, of the eighteenth century spectator essayists, particularly Hazlitt. And you can see that mm-hmm. because you know that is the very highest art of the essay. If you can if you can aspire to be as good as a Hazlitt, yeah, yeah. and she and she does, and she pulls it off, but in these very very small ways. Could you give us an example of that? Is there a piece you could read us that, that uh, d- demonstrates that? Yes. Let me know when you're ready, Dave. Yeah, okay, so this is a New York interior from a piece called Howard's Apartment. The rain is falling fast and as black as ever. The windows of the front apartment, where the party is, must be streaming with rain, frothing almost, and 10th Street must be streaming too, and frothing black. But a cocktail party has to expand if it can. And now the people in front have opened their door and left it open. What a lot of noise they're making with glasses and bottles and music and voices. They must have hundreds of people in there. Once in a while, over the low roar of conversation, there is a loud laugh. And once in a while, a little shriek. Outside, all the noise in the world is being hammered into the earth by the rain. And inside, all the noise there is, is effervescing at the cocktail party. Only in this room, there is stillness. And the stillness has gone tense. The room is waiting for something to happen. I could light the fire, but my friend forgot to leave me any logs. I could turn on a lamp but there is no animal feeling in electricity. I stand up again and walk over to the phonograph and switch it on without changing the record that I played this morning. The music strengthens and moves about, catching the pictures, the books, and the discoloured white marble mantelpiece as firelight might have done. Now the place is no longer a cave, but a room with walls that listen in peace. I hear the music... And I watch the voice. I can see it. It is a voice to follow with your mind's eye. La brave, said elle. There is no other. Billie Holiday is singing. Yeah, I just... 
John just says, yeah, brilliant. I mean, what can you say? Right. Thank you so much. And with that, we must sadly leave the suburbs of Dublin. Huge thanks to Sinead and David for acting as our guides through Maeve Brennan's world, to Nicky Birch for making us sound like we're all sitting around a table in Bewley's, and to Unbound for the Walnut Furniture. You can download all 173 previous episodes, plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website, backlisted.fm, and we're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter, that other thing that's just been launched, Facebook, and now in Sound of Pictures on Instagram too. You can also show your love directly by supporting our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. We aim to survive without paid-for advertising. Your generosity helps us to do that. All patrons get to hear backlisted episodes early. And for less than the price of an L of velvet cloth from Ramsey's, Lock listeners get two extra lock listeds a month. Our very own suburban wow. house where we three set fires, gaze at Goodness. the garden and eat cake <laughs> while regaling one another with tales drawn from the books, films and music we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight. Lock listeners also get to hear their names read out on this show as a mark of our thanks and appreciation. And this week's new patrons include... Paul Colnagi. Hooray! Inga. Hooray! Carl Egan. Thanks, Carl. Fred. Thank you, Fred. Thank you, Fred. And Andrea Bollons. And thank you, Andrea. And uh, thank you all for your generosity and to all our patrons. Huge thanks for enabling us to continue to do what we love and enjoy. Let us turn to our guests, David Hayden. Is there anything you wish to say about Maeve Brennan or the Springs of Affection that we have not had time uh, to cover that you would like to get on the record now? That um, everybody should just go out and buy it on trust and read it immediately it'd be the best thing you do this year he's right listeners he's right <laughs> Sinead same question to you what would you like to tell us about Maeve Brennan or the Springs of Affection or anything or any of her writing that you feel we might not have covered today so far I don't think you can say this about a lot of writers but I think you'll be utterly changed by the work of Mae Brennan, if you read it, you won't be the same person again having read her work. That's what, and I can't stress that enough. So there's only two short story collections, a novella, and a brilliant collection of of columns um, that I consider to be essays. So read them all. But yeah, you'll you'll never be the same after reading her. That's that's what I want to say. John, do you want to be the same? I don't. She sent a little note to William Maxwell. Um, she said, "Dear William." It is all a fairy tale. Best love, mm. Maeve. And then she says, these are our lives, lives in italics. Yeah. I can't get over it. <laughs> this this is life. These are our lives. These are our, these are our lives. lives. <laughs> can't get over it. Uh, thanks so much, uh, David and Sinead. What a, that's been one of the most moving episodes of this yeah. thing we've ever done. Thank Absolutely. you so much. I, we really, really appreciate your time and your enthusiasm and your commitment to I mean I feel like Maeve Brennan is is you know there's lots of authors who fit the backlisted definition but in a sense she is the the thing right she is. she is so good so unknown so deserving of David as you said please just go and buy the work and read the work and Sinead as you said you won't be the same after that so amazing anyway Thanks very much, everybody. We'll see you next time. And David and Sinead, thanks so Thank much. You, John, you. see you next Bye. time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.